can stand now. We're going to read God's word together. We're in Matthew chapter 15. We begin our time of hearing from God today. We've heard from him as he's called us into worship. We've responded in prayer. And we've heard from him as he's called us into his presence. And we've responded in prayer. And now we're going to hear from him and hear the explanation of his word. Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 10. This is the word of our Lord. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. You may be seated. Pray and ask the Lord for understanding. Our Father in heaven, we know that your spirit speaks through your word and your spirit corrects us and changes us. Lord, we know that you can speak through this sermon as we seek to better understand your word, but that can only happen if your spirit is speaking this morning. Your spirit speak. Move me out of the way. Open our ears to hear, our hearts and minds to understand. Let us see Jesus as the Christ this morning. Lord, I pray that, that, that right now any, any sense of righteousness that we think we bring that isn't deeply rooted in Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that that would be altogether removed this morning. Undermine any false notion of justification before you on our own. In Christ's name, amen. Well, our passage this week is really just the second half of last week's passage. Just to refresh you on what's happening here, Jesus has been going about the countryside, staying mostly in the northern territories, or what we call Galilee. And we could divide what he's been doing over the last 15 chapters of Matthew into three general categories. The first is he's been making this gospel announcement that the kingdom is here, the kingdom is near, therefore repent. Secondly, he's been performing signs and wonders that verify his gospel announcement. He's, he's proving through his actions 
that the kingdom has come. It's broken in. Messiah is here. And he, Jesus, is the Messiah. And the third thing he's been doing is, is teaching. And his teaching is what is particularly problematic because his teaching, Jesus is teaching, what true righteousness looks like, what true obedience to God looks like. And because that teaching is different than what the mainline explanation of obedience to God's law has been, well, well his teaching has been received as, as antagonistic to the mainline tradition what we call the tradition of the Pharisees. Well, word has made its way from all these local small towns where Jesus has been ministering and from the leaders of those small towns and the religious leaders of those small towns, and word has gotten all the way down to Jerusalem, the big city, where the chief priest is and where the leaders are. And now the bigwigs of the Pharisaical movement, the Pharisees movement, has, they've sent a contingent up to where Jesus is to confront Jesus. The local guys haven't been able to do a good enough job, apparently. And the aim of the Jerusalem scribes and Pharisees that we saw last week, their aim, if this was 2020, would be to cancel Jesus, to smear him, to discredit him, to throw him in front of the internet train and move on so that they can continue to do their work without his opposition voice. So they've come up to challenge Jesus, particularly on his standard of holiness and cleanness. See, Jesus works on the Sabbath. He touches unclean people. He says he has the authority to forgive sins. And now word has gotten out that Jesus does not follow the Jewish hand-washing rituals. And so what did Jesus do? We saw this last week. He, he called them out. He confronted them in their hypocrisy. He fought back. And even by today's standards, we would have to admit that Jesus was not nice in the way that he fought back. Well, that gets us up to verse 10 of our passage this week. And we're going to see that not only did, did Jesus respond to the Pharisees' accusation to their faces, he then turns from the Pharisees who had confronted him, and now he's going to speak to the crowds. Matthew says in verse 10, he called all the people to him. And he does that because he's got more to say. I hope you have your, your Bibles open because this morning we're just going to go verse by verse, by verse, by verse, all the way through. So verse 10, Jesus calls the people to them. To him, he's got more to say to them. And, and I want you to picture this, okay? Some of the most powerful religious leaders in all the land, in all the country, in all the world, really, when it comes to Judaism, have just confronted Jesus. They, they've, they, they've come to him to confront him, and he has verbally berated them. He's called them false teachers, and then he turns to the crowds. And remember, all these crowds grew up listening to this teaching from the Pharisees. So he turns to the crowds, who, were, who maybe for the first time in their lives are seeing some of these big wigs, and he's going to correct 
the Pharisees' teaching in front of the Pharisees to the crowds. Look at what he says to the crowds. Look at verses 10 and 11. And he begins with this phrase, hear and understand. Now stop, just pause right there for a moment because that's not a throwaway statement. When Jesus says, hear and understand, that's a really important phrase. This is how Jesus introduces parables. Back in chapter 13, our our parable chapter, if you'll remember, Jesus began all of those parables by saying, hear the parable of the sower. That's how he began. And then he ends those parables when we got to that part about the new treasures and the old treasures, and he said, do you understand or have you understood these things? So the parables are are there to be heard and understood. So that's sort of a a formula. Hear and understand is a way to introduce a parable. But this phrase also shows us that Jesus is showing his Messiah-fulfilling ways again. Saunders read for us from Isaiah 55, but right before that in Isaiah 52, the last verse of Isaiah 52 is about the Messiah, the holy servant of God. And it says, so shall he, or this was the right passage, wasn't it? Okay. Anyway, let me just read for you Isaiah 52, verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. That which they have not been told they see, that which they have not heard they understand. And now Jesus is saying, hear and understand. That's important. He's bringing this type of teaching that Messiah was promised to bring. It's a fuller, deeper, more complete understanding of God's righteousness. And everyone knew Messiah was going to bring that. So don't miss that little phrase. Now let's look at the teaching that he brings. Look at verse 11. He says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Now, now we've been going through Matthew's gospel, and we're kind of used to hearing this idea. He told us back in chapter 7, a tree is known by its fruit. What comes out of the tree is what tells us whether it's a good tree or not. In other words, what comes out of the person is what tells us who that that person really is. And then he taught us that same idea. As we moved along, we got to chapter 12. He said a tree, again, a tree is known by its fruit. And he, he went on to say that out of the abundance of our hearts, the mouth speaks. Do you remember that? So he's drawing out this idea. He's applying teaching that he's already taught. What we say reveals what's in our hearts. If we say evil things, it is indicative of an evil heart. And here we are, and he's teaching that same concept again. Only this time, he's introducing this concept alongside of what the Pharisees teach. And he's showing us how his teaching directly contradicts what the Pharisees teach. The Pharisees were very, very, very particular about what went into a person, about what you eat. They had lots and lots of rules about what you could eat and what you couldn't eat because they wanted They wanted to be known as holy. They wanted to be seen by the world around them as holy, as set apart, as the people of God. And to them, that's what it meant to be the people of God. And Jesus says very, very directly, 
in contrast to what they've been teaching. It's not what goes into your mouth. It's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. Rather, it's what comes out. In the gospel writer Matthew, when he records this, this, this incident, he makes the observation here in parentheses that Jesus was declaring all foods clean. Matthew, I think, also wants us to see that, but he wants us to read between the lines. Jesus is undermining here, you have to see this, he is undermining one of the pillars of the way of the, of the Pharisees. One of the very, very big ideas that the Pharisees had been teaching as the right way to be Jewish. So, so to paraphrase Jesus, he says the Pharisees say what goes into you makes you unclean, but I say what comes out of you makes you unclean. Now, what do you think is going to happen as a result? When, when Jesus directly contradicts the teaching of the Pharisees, think of the cringe factor. If I preached an entire sermon and Saunders gets up here to, to lead us in our call to response and he says, everything he said was false. Now multiply that times 100 and you're just getting a little bit of the sense of, of the, the radical nature of what Jesus has just done. Pharisees are offended. That's an understatement. Look at verse 12. The disciples come to Jesus and said, and you can kind of just see their face and they're kind of not sure how to approach this. Jesus, do, do you know that the Pharisees were offended by what you said? And, and they're, they're kind of torn. They're torn because they know Jesus is the Messiah. They, they've just bowed down to him not long ago. But they also know that these Pharisees are the guys with the teaching. And now they're offended. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? See, the fact that Jesus wasn't PC enough for the Pharisees has them very concerned. You, you could... You could Spin what they're saying into a lot of different ways. Jesus, that might have been a little too direct. Do you think you should apologize? Jesus, why are you pushing back against the Pharisees? Do you know how holy these men are? Do you know what they can do to you? They can ruin you. Jesus, these men can have you canceled. Why must you be so offensive, Jesus? Have you wondered that before? Have you questioned Jesus' offensiveness? Are there passages that you wish weren't in the Bible? You just wish that the Bible would, would whisper a little quieter about homosexuality so that you wouldn't have to explain it? D does it bug you that Jesus is teaching about sex and marriage flies directly in the face of the teaching of the world? Do you wish that the Bible would have just left all that stuff out about men leading their, Bible, men leading their wives and men leading the church so that you wouldn't have to defend it in an age of feminism? Do you wish that the Bible wouldn't be so clear, 
so devastatingly clear about how we deal with our money? Do you wish that the Bible wasn't so clear about creation and holiness and humanity and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ? Do you wish that Jesus just wasn't so offensive so that we could get along with the world and not have to be so different than everybody? you do, if you have, you're feeling the cringe of the Pharisees. You're feeling the discomfort, not the Pharisees, but the disciples. You're feeling the discomfort that the disciples felt when Jesus confronted the mainline teaching of the world around him. And he offended them. So in the same way that the disciples say, Jesus, do you know that the Pharisees are offended by you? You might think, Jesus, do you know that my college professors are offended by you? Jesus, do you know that my friends are offended by you? That my family is offended by the things you teach? Jesus, do you know that the things you say make it impossible for me to be accepted by the world? Look at what Jesus says in response. Look at verse 13. Jesus puts things into perspective. The disciples are, are, are struck to the heart. They're worried about the consequences of what offending the powers that be can be in their lives. And Jesus says, the powers that be are not to be confused by the power that is. He says, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Let's examine these sentences because Jesus has said something even more offensive here. Let's look at the first one. Every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. What's he talking about there? Do you remember the parable of the wheat and the weeds? Or as your King James Bible says, the wheat and the tares from chapter 13? If you miss that parable, you're going to miss Jesus' teaching here. In that parable, Jesus was trying to get his disciples to understand the nature of the kingdom, how the Lord was working even in the here and now, establishing the kingdom, and yet the work wasn't going to be completed until judgment day. And he taught in that parable that God in his sovereign goodness and wisdom sowed his good seed into the field. That is, he sowed his chosen people into the kingdom. And to be sown into the kingdom meant that you would have an allegiance that was to Christ. You would see him, you would see Jesus as the Christ, and you would worship him as the Christ and the king. And he went on to explain that there was another group in that field. Do you remember this? It wasn't just God's planted wheat. It wasn't just his harvest. There was another planting that had not been planted by the Father. They're not of the Father. They do not recognize Jesus as king. This planting, the weeds, as he called them in that parable, they were planted by the enemy, he said. And we're supposed to understand very clearly that by enemy, he means Satan. And if you remember, at the end of that parable came harvest time. And at harvest time, the wheat would be separated from the weeds, and the weeds would be burned. So when Jesus says this, 
Every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. He's saying about the Pharisees, they do not belong to the kingdom. They are doing the devil's work. They're planted by Satan. And because they are under another influence, their opinion of me is irrelevant. They have no say in the kingdom. Ignore them. Let them alone, he says in verse 14. He's saying, let them say what they want to say. Let them be offended. Of course they're offended. They are opposed to God. And God will deal with them on his own. And he goes on. Look at that next sentence. Look at the rest of verse 14. They are blind guides. Now, now what does he mean by blindness here? Think back again, back to chapter 13. Very important chapter. If, If you need to go back and read chapter 13, do it this evening, because you will see that Jesus uses language from chapter 13 throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel. He talked there in chapter 13 about the blind, and by that he meant spiritual blindness. There were those that could see Jesus of Nazareth, but they couldn't see him as the Messiah. And Jesus said that that fulfilled Isaiah chapter 6. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Now add to that, that the men that he's talking about are guides. They're the ones who in all of Israel are pointing everyone to God, or at least they're supposed to be. These are the people that are teaching people how to live in obedience to God's law. What Jesus says here is, oh, they're guides, all right. They're not leading you to God. They're leading you to the pit. So don't follow them. I want you to pause here and just see what Jesus is doing. What has he done? He is engaging in something we call polemics. He's using the power of words to engage in war against the enemy. And friends, we absolutely must be willing to do this. You as Christians, have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of a kingdom that is other than the world. It's a message that is contrary to the world. So whenever you proclaim the gospel, you've got to understand you're not in neutral territory. Whenever you proclaim the gospel, you are engaging in the battle that Christ himself engaged in. So I want to make some observations here about the way that Jesus does this. And there's going to be two big takeaways. The first big takeaway is to look at Jesus' method. So let's examine his method. It comes in three parts. Notice in the first how Jesus is showing how the truth opposes the falsehood by first confronting the false teachers. And the way he confronts that false teaching is very direct. He confronts the teachers to their faces. He tells them, and this was last week's sermon, but he told them in in no uncertain terms, you are misleading God's people, and you aren't following God, and you're breaking God's law. There's There's no passive, aggressive, politically correct, 
beat around the bush, walk on eggshell stuff with Jesus. He is confrontational. He goes face to face with the men who are leading an entire nation astray. And he does it with the word of God. What does that say to us? That means we have got to be willing, we have to have the courage to speak face to face with those in the church at large, and this church, if it's me. We have to be willing to confront those who would distort the gospel and lead others astray in doing it. This is not easy. It doesn't feel nice. It's incredibly hard. But, but when someone, especially someone leading others, is distorting or perverting or mixing worldliness with the gospel, we must have the fortitude to point to God's word and show them their error. And that, I think we can see because of the way Christ does it, that is the Christ-like thing to do. Eternity is at stake. Eternity is at stake for, for the people under the watch of these leaders. So we must not be cowardly and somehow think that this is none of our business. Second thing he does after confronting the Pharisees, he, he speaks the truth to the crowd. So in the crowds, by that I mean the people who have been influenced by the false teaching. He gives them the right and true teaching. And finally, notice that he does not engage the Pharisees anymore after having condemned them and their teaching. It's not a debate for him. Jesus tells them the truth, and then he does not engage them further or give them an opportunity to defend their false teaching. And what he's doing here is, is exegeting in real life Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. You might have read these two seemingly contradictory verses before. Let me read them for you. The, the Proverbs tell us, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And then the very next verse, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And Jesus shows us what that means. Because that seems like a paradox to me. But Jesus shows first the Pharisees what their foolishness is, what their false teaching is. But then he doesn't get caught up in their foolish debates, their endless debates about the law, as Paul will later call them. He doesn't stoop to the level of the Pharisees. See, Jesus' aim is not to be the greatest debater among the Pharisees. His aim is to undermine entirely the way of the Pharisees by showing the true way and revealing the kingdom. Now, the second takeaway that we need to understand here, having said all of that, here's our second takeaway. You ain't Jesus. You and I do not have the discernment that Jesus has. We don't know the Bible as well as Jesus does. We don't know the past and the present and the future as well as Jesus does, who knows it all perfectly. We can't read minds and we can't read hearts and motivations the way that Jesus can. And here's the kicker. If none of those have persuaded you, you know this one. You and I are not as sinless as Jesus. 
So while Jesus has every right to respond to the Pharisees with every last ounce of impassioned brazenness and boldness that he can muster, what do we have to do? We must first be very aware of our own sinfulness and very aware of our own ignorance. We have to, we've, we have to know how very easily clouded our judgment is. It's clouded by our anger. It's clouded by our self-righteousness. And we also have to know how little we know. And you'd be surprised how much you need to know to know how little you know. So while we absolutely must confront perversions of the gospel, we must be wise, we must be self-aware in the way that we do it. So on the one hand, we cannot be timid, we cannot be cowardly, and call that humility. And on the other hand, we can't be rash and arrogant thinking we're being bold and courageous. We must be fundamentally Christ-like and wise. And what do we know about wisdom? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And that in the time that it takes you to ask God for wisdom is probably the right amount of time you should take before you respond. So let's get back in the text. Verse 15. Oh, this is good. Speaking of lacking wisdom, Peter has something to say. So Peter says to Jesus, explain the parable to us. Now, which parable is Peter talking about here? Well, he's talking about that what goes into the mouth doesn't defile you, but what comes out, that teaching, that parable. And, it, and I want to say here, in Peter's defense, Make fun of him. It's easy to make fun of him. Peter is the only one among the disciples who has, who has the courage and the fortitude to ask this question. And he asks it on behalf of the disciples. Explain it to us, he said. Explain the parable to us. So he's willing to take the bullet. While all the disciples are confused, only Peter, the leader, has the courage to ask for clarification. And Jesus answers him, look at verse 16. He says, are you, and, and, and you can't see this in your Bibles, but that you is plural. So he's not just responding to Peter, he's responding to all the disciples. Just think y'all, are y'all. Peter says in verse, or Jesus says in verse 16, are y'all still without understanding? Are you all also still without understanding? Remember back at the beginning, he said here and what? understand. Verse 10, hear and understand. Now Jesus is saying, do you not understand? Or rather, do you still not understand? And he's justified in using that still. Are you you still? You still not get it? Because think, they've been following Jesus all this time. This is not new teaching. He has taught them again and again that sin begins in the heart. Our our defilement before God begins in the heart. They should be getting this by now. But you have to see that the, the, the disciples are so indoctrinated by the teaching of the Pharisees 
that they just can't process what Jesus is saying. Think about, just for some perspective, imagine being told your whole life, from the time you could read, from the time that you could speak, from the time you could eat, imagine being told your whole life that eating pork or eating without washing your hands will cancel out your Jewish heritage. That by doing things like that, that you might as well be an uncircumcised Gentile dog. That, that's what they've been taught their whole lives. And so they're really having trouble hearing this man who is the Jew of Jews, Messiah himself, telling, telling them that all of that is wrong. They want to make sure they understand Jesus correctly. So, in verse 17, Jesus responds with a very simple biology lesson. He says, what you eat goes in your mouth, you swallow it, it goes into your stomach, and from your stomach it is expelled. Now, our modern Bibles are very polite about this verse, but you might have a footnote. If you have an ESV, I know you have a footnote, and if you're reading the King James, you don't need a footnote because they weren't as polite in 1611. The Greek text actually says it goes from the stomach and is expelled into the aphidrona or the latrine or the toilet. Or if you're reading the King James, it says the, the draft, which is a word that I've never heard to describe an outhouse. Jesus is saying to the disciples, let me draw for you a picture. What you eat cannot make you defiled because it goes into you and it comes out of you. And then he goes on. Look at verse 18. This is where he gets us. But what comes out of your mouth? Where does that come from? When you say something cruel or hurtful, when you lie, when you blaspheme, when you slander, where do those words originate? What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And that's what defiles a person. What's in our hearts? That's where our problem is. That is, that is the root of our separation from God. From, that's the root. That's what makes us unclean before God. Look at what Jesus says comes from our hearts. Look at verse 19. And he begins with this one, evil thoughts. He starts with evil thoughts. That's where all sin begins, isn't it? Our sin begins in our hearts. It becomes an evil thought, and then we work from there. Sin, he's teaching us, does not begin with our circumstances. Our sin does not begin with our families or some neurosis we have or some abnormality we have or some addiction we have. It doesn't begin with the color of our skin or how much little or how much money we make or how little money we make or how noisy the kids are being today or, or how hungry we are or how little sleep we got or what type of culture we come from. And it certainly doesn't 
come from the food that goes into our mouths. It's a, it's a greater to the lesser argument. Our sin begins in our hearts. Our evil thoughts, verse 19, our evil thoughts begin in our hearts. And notice what he's saying. He's saying that the thought itself is sinful. So while you may have the self-control to avoid acting on that thought, or, or maybe you have the fear of consequence to avoid acting on that thought, the thought itself is sinful. It reveals what's in our hearts. And he mows on from there, and he basically just works his way through the Ten Commandments, like we did last week. Look at this list that he gives us in verse 19. And, and, and notice, all of these begin with evil thoughts. But the list includes murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. All of these, Jesus is teaching, all of these are actions that prove our defilement before God. And all of those actions are flowing out of our sinful, unclean, wicked, and evil hearts. I want you to see this. The Pharisees are teaching the people of that day. What makes us distinct as Jewish people is what makes us right before God. The more Jewish-ish we appear, the more God will love us. And so they overemphasize what separates them from the Gentiles. Ritual hand-washing and praying publicly and loudly in front of everyone. Fasting and dressing Jewish and eating a particular diet and strictly observing the Sabbath and so on. Believing that so long as they appear before others that they are Jewish, then they will be in good standing with God. And Jesus is telling them, you're missing it. You're missing it. Your outward Jewishness is not what makes you right before God, Pharisees, and Israel. It's your heart that makes you right before God. You must have a pure heart. To paraphrase Jesus, he, God is not looking for clean hands. God's looking for a clean heart. And so in the same way, I think, I know, he would say to us, Christian, your outward religiosity, the stuff in, in the traditions that make you appear Christian, that's not what makes you right before God. That's not what it means to be Christian. It's your heart. To, to help us understand this, maybe, you, maybe you've seen the play Macbeth. Shakespeare's Macbeth, or read it in high school or college. There's this scene in Macbeth where Lady Macbeth's sins begin to catch up with her. And she has many. She has either assisted in the killing of people or killed them herself. herself. And she's plagued with guilt as the, as the play goes on, and she begins to sleepwalk at night. And she sees visions on her hands of blood. And it's the blood of, of the men that she's killed. And her hands are stained with their blood. And she smells the stench of their blood. And so what does she do? She washes her hands. Washes her hands. 
and washes her hands and washes her hands for 30 minutes. She scrubs her hands. And after washing and scrubbing and soaping and washing and scrubbing and soaping, she still sees the spots of blood on her hands. And she fears that those spots of blood will prove her guilt before others. And she'll be found out. And if it's not just what she sees on her hands, she smells it. And she says, all the perfume in Arabia can never get rid of this smell. She's going to be found out. Now, what is Shakespeare telling us? He's telling us, all the rituals that you may think you can do to remove the sin in your heart, none of it will work. You can quit drinking, you can quit smoking, you can quit looking at porn, you can quit cussing, you can serve at the food bank, you can serve at the homeless shelter, you can tithe, you can march for social justice, you can post stuff on social media, you can become an ally to the cause, you can go to confession, you can pray all these special prayers, you can attend church, you can have hands that to the world are as bright and clean as a newborn baby's. They're as bright and spotless, spotless as, as polished diamonds. Clean hands. Because of all the stuff you've done. But none of that can remove the stain of sin from your heart. None of it. None of it. God requires a pure heart. You cannot be made right with God. You can't be justified with God in the way that the Pharisees wanted to be and in the way that you and I want to be. It cannot be done without a pure heart. You see, God requires perfect righteousness all the way through you, all the way through you, from the inside to the outside, heart, mind, and soul, your whole life. In order to be justified before God, your whole life must be righteous before him. And you haven't got it. And I haven't got it. Our thoughts betray us. Just one evil thought, one envious thought, one lustful thought, one covetous thought. All of that, just one, proves our unclean and defiled hearts before God. And those unclean hearts lead us to slander. And they lead us to gossip. And they lead us to curse other people. And our unclean hearts lead us to do sinful things. And they lead us to avoid righteous things. You see, we simply haven't got what God requires of us. We can't be who God requires us to be no matter how much good we do and how much bad we avoid. No matter what we do to stop it, no human intervention can stop up the flow. The flow that comes from the wellspring of our evil hearts. But listen, what God requires, Christ provides. What God requires, Christ provides. That's the good news of the cross. 
for our sake, he made him who knew no sin. He made the one with a perfect and sinless and pure heart to be the very essence of sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But thanks be to God, we who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from where? From a pure heart. Obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Romans 6, 17. Friends, by the grace of God, by Christ's atoning work on the cross, by the power of the Spirit working in us, we have been made righteous. Righteous before God in Christ. Because in Christ, we have Christ's heart. Pure hearts. Hearts that can love God. Hearts that can obey God. We can approach God with no defilement. With confidence. Because we are in Christ. And we have his heart. And we have his righteousness. His relationship with the Father. What God requires, Christ provides. Amen? Amen. That is the good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that though Christ would reveal to us our deepest, greatest need, he would provide it for us.